The following podcast is a W2M Network original production. Visit W2Mnet.com for all of our other great podcasts, plus news, reviews, articles, and opinions from the worlds of wrestling, video games, football, and entertainment. What's up, guys? Welcome once again to Wrestling Unwrapped. I can't believe it. It took almost two damn years, but we finally hit number 50. And, I mean, I don't know. I I feel like we could have picked an important show, but this one's kind of iffy. I don't know about you. I'm your host, Patrick Kessa, and joining me, as always, for almost all the previous 49 episodes, Mr. Harry Broadhurst. Yeah, I think we both actually missed one episode each. I had a... I had a situation where I was off due to birthday plans. You had a situation where you missed a show due to shimmer. I mean, it's been almost two years, so... Oh, you're talking this year. No, I didn't miss my show due to my birthday this year. My birthday was on a Tuesday, and we had a pay-per-view the show before my birthday. Hmm. I feel like I've missed more. Eh, not, not important. Neither here nor there. What's up, everybody? Welcome to a presentation of the W2M Network available online at www.w2mnet.com. In addition to these episodes of Wrestling Unwrapped, you can find everything in relation to football, wrestling, video games, soccer, entertainment, and so much more by visiting at our online home for the W2M Network at w2mnet.com. Dot com. Damn it. All right. So, you know, I I don't know how I feel about this week's episode. I mean, you know, for, for a 50th episode, you, you want something important. You know, you want a big-time event. And I, I just, I don't know that we really hit it with this. Yeah. I, Brent Fornick hitting with himself really doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Even he'd give it a 4 out of 10. Yeah, I mean... It's it's I don't know. I mean it's not like this would completely affect professional wrestling or anything like that in the fact that it would end up leading to probably one of the most dominating characters of all time in professional wrestling history. Just saying. <laughs> Things are what they are. In case, uh, in case we're not being subtle enough, our choice tonight is an event that is actually going to have its 20th anniversary this upcoming Thursday, that being the 1997 Survivor Series Gang Rules from the Molson Center. Hmm? Time out, time out, time out. Wait, 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 wait. Thursday? I thought it was Tuesday. Isn't it 11-7-97? I thought it was 11-9-97. Well, I'm off to Wikipedia. You continue your introduction. I'm going to go look. It is. It's 11-9 because I had the Wikipedia page up. <laughs> oh, well, then never mind. I guess I don't have to go to Wikipedia. I always thought it was 11-7. My bad. Nope. This is 11-9. Or if you're in the uh, city this takes place, 9-11-97. Nope. Not making any jokes on this call. I'm not going to do it. Nope. Next. No, no, no. I wasn't talking about that. I was just talking about the European version of the date. That's literally all that I was... Anyway. 
from the Molson Center in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Canada? Canada. Oh, Canada, our home and native land. And thanks to Bret Hart, he makes this show really bland. What? Brett Hader. Yeah, and? No, it's He's just boring. Just for that, from now on, it's all Hulk Hogan all the time here on Wrestling Unwrapped. Hey, I won't be here next week. <laughs> anyway, so yes, it is, of course, the 20th anniversary of the Montreal Screwjob. One of probably the most famous moments in professional wrestling history. And we're going to be talking about it for the next little while. But before we get to that, as always, here's Harry with the results from Survivor Series. Oh, jeez, you went to me too quickly. I wasn't ready. Okay, I'm ready now. Oh, for Christ. Jesus. All right. All right, so runtime on the network, Patrick. What was it? 242.56. 240, 246, close enough. I have a DVD copy of the show, and by that I mean it is a pay-per-view copy converted to DVD. So it was a pay-per-view recorded to a VHS tape and then transferred to a DVD. (laughs) The actual runtime of this pay-per-view is 2 hours, 47 minutes, and 54 seconds, which means stuff got chopped from the network version. And because you have, because, and real quick, because you have the actual pay-per-view edition, I had left open the idea that your copy, before you told me, had included all the stuff that happens after. But because you have the official pay-per-view copy, that would be a no. No, my assumption is that there's stuff between, there's a couple of hard cuts at the start of the show we'll talk about that are things that may or may not have been edited off the network for either context or time allotment. (laughs) Because reasons. Because WCW? Almost. Not quite there yet, though. No, that was last week. (laughs) That'll be two weeks from now. Three weeks from now. Well, yeah, because we'll we'll talk more about our upcoming schedule a little bit later on down the road. Shall we get to the results? Yes. All right, let's do this. As Patrick mentioned, we are in the Molson Center in Toronto, Ontario. Okay, it doesn't work when it's not Landstorm. Canada, for the 1997 edition of the World Wrestling Federation's Survivor Series. Our opening contest, Survivor Series Tag Match, sees the New Age Outlaws, though not yet called such, and the Godwins, called such, defeating the Headbangers and the New Blackjacks at 15 minutes and 27 seconds. Oh, wait, sorry. Uh, Do you want to do the the order of elimination now or when we talk about the individual matches? (laughs) Oh, just for the hell of it. Let's do it now. This is going to take forever. No, it's not. You just got to repeat one move six times. <laughs> no, that's in the second match, not in the first one. The first one actually Oh, then no, 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 then no. We'll do them before the individual matches, okay? So that way it's okay. easier for people. It's easier for people to follow. 
especially when it comes to a very specific bitch that we have about one of the matches. <laughs> bitch. The Truth Commission defeats the Disciples of Apocalypse at 10 minutes. And we move on. Yeah. Team Canada, kind of, ish, sort of, defeats Team USA at 17 minutes and 47 seconds. One was an actual Team USA. The other one was kind of Team Canada. As I said, Canada-ish. Yep. Commonwealth. Team Commonwealth. No, even that's a bit of a stretch, but we'll talk about that when we get to it. Kane pins Mick Foley with a tombstone pile driver after the most god-awful-looking press slam I have ever seen, and I don't mean that in terms of execution. I mean that in terms of landing. Trust me, we'll talk about it at 9 minutes and 31 seconds. The most over man on the pay-per-view, not from Canada, named Ken Shamrock and Team Shamrock, they didn't actually give them a team name, defeats the Nation of Domination at 20 minutes and 34 seconds. Hey, he's the, only single, person to, he, he's the only single person to actually get a team named after him. Stone Cold! Stone Cold! Stone Cold! Steve Austin regains the Intercontinental title, pinning Owen Hart with a stunner at 4 minutes and 4 seconds. Remember that and, time! And your main event... <clears throat> scheduled for one fall. Ish. <laughs> yeah. Sort of. <laughs> and a whole, whole, whole lot of pre-match shenanigans. Sees oh, Shawn Michaels <laughs> air quotes on an audio podcast. Bret Hart. At 12 minutes and 21 seconds, you had to know that line was coming there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> With the sharpshooter. We got a lot to discuss here, Patrick. And by a lot to discuss, I mean a lot of nothing in a couple of these matches. We have a lot to discuss in one match. (laughs) Thank you, Harry, as always, for the results. So, our 50th episode. Why don't we just take one of the most controversial nights in the World Wrestling Federation slash entertainment history? Because, sure, why not? I'm telling, you folks, I'm telling huh? you, folks, if you, if you like sidewalk slams, this show's for you. Oh, God, that's an understatement. <laughs> this show is Wrestling Unwrapped, the 1997 Survivor Series Gang Rules. And kicking things off, as mentioned, is a Survivor Series-style kind of four-on-four elimination tag team match. Well, originally originally they were five-on-five, then they went to four-on-four, then they went back to five-on-five, then they went back to four-on-five. They really never could figure out what they wanted to do with that. For me, Survivor Series match is five-on-five. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm okay with the four-on-four, especially given the context of how that way you don't have to shoehorn as many people into one concept. At least it's not five-team on five-team. Yes, we are never, ever, ever getting back to doing Survivor Series 1987. Or 1988. Or last year. 
we actually did. Oh, no, we didn't do Survivor Series last year, did we? Yeah, we did. Did we? We went back and did it post? Because I thought that was Shimmer Weekend last year. Uh, no, I think we did it the weekend after. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll go back to the archives and check that one out. Anyway, kicking or things off can, is a... Or you can go back and check our archives over at YouTube.com and searching for the W2M Network. Or you could also find us on CastBox in a rather large surprise. Anyway, taking things it is a four-on-four Survivor Series-style match. It is the Godwins and the... Yeah, the Godwins and the Headbangers. No, it's the Godwins and New Age Outlaws versus the Blackjacks and the Headbangers. Yes, I did just get the Blackjacks and the Godwins mixed up. They are not quite yet the New Age Outlaws, I don't think. They're not, but it's the easiest way to talk about them. Hey, Patrick, nothing says the start of a pay-per-view like a gay slur. Yeah, sure, why not? And this is anything goes. Real quick, I guess anything goes in Montreal. Real quick... Um, elimination to see Bradshaw pin Henry at 3 minutes and 53 seconds, a.k.a. Mark Canterbury. Uh, Phineas Midian, who I will refer to as Midian going forward, pins Barry Windham at 5.13. Billy Gunn pins Mosh at 8.42. Thrasher pins Midian at 12.39. Road Dog pins Bradshaw at 13.46-ish. The screw finishes weren't limited to the main event there. I will talk about it shortly. And Billy Gunn pins Thrasher, kind of, sort of, I guess, supposed to be the finish anyway, at 15.27. Folks, this is a long show. Um... Shall we, start, shall we start with the slur that got left on the network copy of this show? Yes, as long as we're not using it. Um, so Road Dog makes his way to the ring, and of course it's Road Dog saying this. It had to be Road Dog saying this. Road yeah, because Billy Gunn can't talk. Road Dog makes his way to the ring and talks about the fact that his opponent's are inside of the ring already, and apparently being in the ring already, we have steers and a word that rhymes with steers. That's a slur for gay people. This was left on. And I'm pretty sure, I don't even remember if Jim Ross apologized for it. I know he apologized for other stuff that happened later in the night, particularly Shawn Michaels, but I don't know that he apologized for that one. No, I don't believe he did either. Maybe somehow in 97 it wasn't as prevalent of a word as it is now. I don't know. But either way, let's move on. Yes. I mean, do we have to talk about the match? Because there's really nothing to it. Oh. I just see a lot of rednecks. (laughs) A lot of, a lot of, you. 
I, I apologize to our southern southern listening peoples. Yeah, there's nothing good about this at, at all, like at all. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm good. There's there's nothing about this match. At least our next one, while it sucks too, there's something to talk about, kind of. Uh, yeah, that, well, actually, there are a couple of things to talk about here. First of all, Bradshaw's elimination. Man, even back in 1997, Bradshaw wouldn't put anyone over. Well, it sounds like he should, uh, it almost sounds like he should take on another gimmick. Uh, I don't know, it's from Texas. Hollywood, maybe, or, no, 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 sorry. Uh, I don't know. Hollywood, John Bradshaw, that could totally work. The ultimate Bradshaw? I got it. John Brother Layfield. Oh, God. <laughs> I knew for a fact that was going to pop you. That's why I said it. Anyway, that's what I was about to say about this here. Because he kicks out literally as the referee's hand hits the mat for the three count. And I don't think he was supposed to. Because Road Dog looked pissed. And quite frankly, outside of Barry Windham and, and this, uh, you know, years on JBL, if there's somebody in this match I would not want to piss off, actually, there's a lot of people in this match that I would not want to piss off, but the smallest guy I would not want to piss off would be, you know, the ex-Marine. Yeah, no, <laughs> nothing says bright idea like pissing off the jarhead. Smooth. Yeah, and, and I realized that I probably wouldn't want to piss off any of the Godwins or any of the Blackjacks, but I also wouldn't want to piss off Road Dog. Spelled with only one G, by the way. Oh, you didn't know? No, actually, I didn't know at that point. Mm-hmm. Except I didn't have to call somebody. I, I just I kind of figured it out. Uh, let's talk about the finish, shall we? Sure, why not? Let's talk about the finish that wasn't a finish because it wasn't a finish. <laughs> okay, you just rewatched the show last night, as did I, because we were texting back and forth as we were watching it. We didn't actually give any of our opinions on anything away back and forth. We were just talking about where we were in the car. Uh, hell, we didn't. <laughs> I mean, there were a couple of things we discussed. Like, we made a couple of game plans as far as discussions to have in regards to the main event. But with yeah. this being the episode that it is, and the main event being what it is in terms of the history of this business, kind of had to set up something for that. That being yeah. said here, Billy Gunn hits a top rope leg drop to finish off Thrasher for the pinfall. Here's the problem. That leg drop misses by a good foot. I'll put it this way. Thrasher was in the middle of the ring. I think Billy Gunn hit his leg drop all the way we're bound for glorious tonight, which is Ottawa. No, Canada. Shut up. It was an accident. It's a theme. <sighs> Anywho, you, you do realize this is the second straight bound for glory that we've had a tie into. The hell did we do last year? Courtney Rush, Van Terminator. Oh, yeah. 
Anywho, moving on, back to the match here. I mean, this year in Canada. Yeah, not that I want to move on to continue talking about this. Actually, I do want to move on to continue talking about this match because that was the last thing I had to say about this match. Gun leg drop misses by a good foot, but it's supposed to be the finish. Therefore, it is the finish. Apparently, Billy did not want to make Thrasher famouser. <clears throat> What's sad is at this point, I think Thrasher may have been the better wrestler. You know, I actually always thought the Headbangers were a decent tag team, and they stuck around for a lot longer as a tag team than I kind of figured they would. Not to mention, they just recently had a run in 2016 as well. God help us. Yeah, well, nostalgia's in, apparently. Apparently. I mean, after all... Speaking of nostalgia... After all, 2016 tag team champions, the New Age Outlaws. Wait, 16? No, earlier than that. 14. 14, yeah. 14, yeah. Still, the fact that the New Age Outlaws had a tag title run after the year 2000 is ridiculous. Moving on. Sure. Speaking of nostalgia, man, I miss Boo Buchanan. He squared? Yes. Uh, Truth Commission versus DOA. As I said earlier in our tease for this show, if you like sidewalk slams, this is the show for you. Normally, okay. I'm just... It's normal. Real, real, real. I was just going to say, normally I'm just going to announce the time of the decisions. This particular match, I'm going to announce the style of the decision as well. <laughs> Gee, I wonder why. Real quick, before you get to that, it's Sniper Recon Jacqueline, the interrogator, <coughs> Kurgan, for the Truth Commission, versus Skull, 8-Ball, Chains, and Crush for the DOA. I'm using their more commonly known names in this instance here. You guys can kind of figure out who they are for yourselves. Okay, I'll actually explain who they are when I first say their names. The interrogator, Kurgan, pins chains Brian Lee, primetime Brian Lee, with a sidewalk <laughs> slam at a minute and 20. Don Harris pins the jackal, Cyrus the virus, Don Callis, with a sidewalk slam at 2 minutes and 52 seconds. It's a jackal! 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 And just like that, Jackal was off this match. No, he wasn't. No, that's another talking point, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, I think it was Dawn that pinned, that pinned Cyrus. I think it was Ron that pinned Bull Buchanan. Eh, they're tall, they're twins, they're Nazis, who cares? As he pinned Recon, a.k.a. B-squared, Bull Buchanan, with a clothesline, because Survivor Series, at 521. <laughs> I can hear you laughing in the background. Yep. Sniper pins Don Harris with a bulldog at 6 minutes and 31 seconds. Kurgan pins Ron Harris with a... Super Walk Slam! <laughs> to, like, to like Tony Schiavone yelling that in Dying Days WCW Nitro. <laughs> at 8.51. Brian Adams, crush, pinned Sniper with a power-slamming side slam. <laughs> Wasn't it like a tilt-a-whirl side slam? Sure, why the hell not? At 9 minutes and 48 seconds. And Kurgan pins Brian Adams with a sidewalk slam at 10 minutes flat. 
which was about 10 minutes too long for these eight men. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Uh, do, you think we, okay. do you think we could quote the count from Sesame Street without being sued here? Well, you already mentioned it, so let's give credit to Sesame Street for this. Yes. Five sidewalk slabs. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> and this was not the shortest match. Should have been, but it wasn't. Yeah, well, Steve Austin still had a broken freaking neck, so. Sure he did. But he had a stingered freaking neck at the very least. Sure he did. No, no, he did. Um, yeah. You're getting slams tonight, whether you like it or not. Corgan is not that good of a wrestler, ever. And yet he's responsible for three quarters of the eliminations of the DOA. Why was Don Callis on commentary? Um, because Jerry Lawler didn't care, and Jim you're, Ross you're, decided. Jim Ross decided to call Don Callis uh, the David Koresh of professional wrestling. We already know he's a cult leader. That was the point of the Truth Commission. Granted, I mean, he essentially cut a six-minute promo, give or take, and didn't do too bad. But one of the main rules for Survivor Series has always been, you get eliminated, you go to the back. Hell, Ross brought it up to him here. And why am I talking about this? Because it gets me out of talking about the match. I have I have two words to describe this contest. Sidewalk slam? <laughs> Besides that. Well Dumpster fire. How dare you give a how dare you disgrace the good name of a dumpster fire with this crap? I'm not saying it sucked. I'm saying it sucked, it sucked, it sucked. Yes, Mr. Broadhurst. Everything sucks. <sighs> uh, do yourself a favor and make judicious use... Uh, do yourself a favor? Do yourself a favor and make judicious use of your fast-forward button for this contest. You will thank us later. This is ten minutes of my life twice that I will never get back now. Twice? I watched it originally to put it down for my DVD results. I rewatched it last night to be ready for the show tonight. Twice. <sighs> Shall we move on to the next match? Team Canada-ish. Defeats Team USA at seventeen forty seven. Shall we hit the eliminations before we get started? Hang on. Vader 
the debuting Ken Shamrock. Wrong. The, no, the Steve. debuting Steve Blackman. Thank you. Shut up. They were both MMA guys. They're completely replaceable. Interchangeable? That too. Carry on. Uh, Gold Dust, and I'm completely blanking. Mark Mara? Yes, him. <laughs> now Marco. I know why I'm blanking. Mero. Now I know why I'm blanking, because it's Mark Mero. Keeping uh, on. Shout out, shout out to Conrad Thompson and SCWW. Yes. Uh, taking on. Now remember, before I get to this, we said Team Canada-ish. Remember that. No, no, no. Remember that. Team Canada-ish. Phil LaFon. Okay, good start. Actual Canadian. Actual Canadian. Doug Furness. Not Canadian, but tag partner. So I'll allow it. Denver, Colorado. Tag partner, though. And not to mention, he does cut a promo disgracing America beforehand, where he said, the saying is, America, love it or leave it. Well, I left it. I actually am okay with that. So perfectly okay with that. British Bulldog. Uh-huh. Um, Canadian by marriage? I guess. Maybe? Part of the Commonwealth? Ah, okay, fair. And Jim Neidhart. Canadian by marriage. American by booze. American by, yeah, we kind of don't have a choice. American by he's the only other Canadian he's the only other person that's uh, not in a match already that's in the Hart Foundation so yeah you're Team Canada yes I feel like I feel like Jim Neidhart would not have been in this match if Brian Pillman had not suffered his untimely demise the month prior oh this uh, feels like a bad time for a plug yeah, we're not. Nope. We'll we'll find another way to talk about that later. Yeah. Inappropri- inappropriate show for the Hell in a Cell review of Bad Blood 97 available in the archives. Subtle. <laughs> well, we got to get things done around here. we still got half a show to get to. All right. Thank so you, the, the eliminations. Blackman by countout at 547. Vader pins Nightheart with death from above or running splash at 733. Vader pins Philippe Lefon at 909 with the Vader bomb. Doug Furness reverses a Marco. No. Roll-up attempt at 1159. Goldust walks out of the match at 1658. Who's the sad panda? Who's the sad panda? Oh, God. Vader pins Doug Furness with a Vader splash. Not sure what the difference between that and a Vader bomb is. I don't know why I wrote Vader splash in my notes. Whatever. No bouncing before it? Huh? No bouncing before it? Possibly. And 
Davy Boy Smith, Le Bulldog de Breton. Oh, by the way, what? By the way, what the hell was up with the ring announcements being in French? They're in Montreal. I don't give a fluff. It's an American pay-per-view. Oh, it's not. It's meant for an American audience. I don't care what Canada wants us to do. Canada. Yeah, just screw up your screw-up. We're even. Davy Boy Smith pins Vader to win the match. Davy Boy Smith pins Vader to win the match after the old demon standby. What the hell? Use the bell. Use the bell. At 17.47. And then Davey proceeds to make the fastest exit for a winner of a Survivor Series match in Survivor Series history. Yeah. <laughs> that might be an understatement. Um, really? You're, you're, you have a gripe about them using a French-Canadian ring announcer? I decree shenanigans. Why? American is their native language. Uh, okay, did they use a French? Did they huh? use a fr- did they use a French ring announcer for in your house international incident back in 1996? Was it in Montreal? Uh, I don't know. I don't remember. It might have been in Ottawa. Keep talking. No. It was in Calgary at the, at the Saddle Dome because the episode of STWW about that particular show talks about the fact that it's um, – it happened the week of the Calgary, the Calgary Stampede, yeah. So Calgary, which is a largely English-speaking city, gets an English ring announcer. Montreal, a predominantly – French-speaking part of Canada gets a French-Canadian ring announcer. I Ah. also believe this may have been the very last time they ever did something like this. I say bah humbug to that, sir. I say a. What's that all about? Okay, rock. Yeah, we got nothing to talk about here. <laughs> now, the match itself is okay. I mean, there's, it, it, it picks up definitely a lot more than the first two do. But at the same time, it's... How can a match that won 17 minutes feel rushed? I mean, well, besides, I mean, besides Davey Boy booking it to the back in order to deal with the Brett drama. Which, at this point, do we even know that there's Brett drama? Like, at this exact moment in time? No, we don't. So. But as we find out what we would find out afterwards, obviously Davey Boy's booking it to the back in order to deal with what's going on with his brother-in-law. Pretty much. Um, I mean, to me, I think of the first three, I think this is the best one of the first three. Um, I will say that the one thing that I noticed, Vader had his working boots on. Kind of didn't have a choice, but Vader, Vader worked 
most of this match, I would say he took about 75% of the time in the ring for Team USA. That sounds about right. I mean, in fairness, Goldust never actually gets into the ring until at the very tail end. And, I mean, we're talking Vader taking 75%, Mero taking 20%, and Blackman taking, like, 5%. Yeah, the first couple of minutes before he gets counted out. So, yeah, it's... uh, Vader was not yet a uh, fat piece of you-know-what, as he would call himself. That's a self-said thing. He said it himself on the live Um, mic at a pay-per-view. I'm aware it was Over the Edge 1998. I'm very well aware of the match that you refer to. Just a big, fat piece of... Anyway. um, But, I mean... I'll leave it there, but at the same time, I mean, we're talking about Vader here. So, you know, for a big guy, he could go. So I'm totally okay with him, you know, working literally 75% of this match. No, I don't disagree. At the same time, though, it's not exactly like anybody's rushing out to watch Vader wrestle in a tag match for 17 minutes either. I agree with the fact that I agree with the fact that we state that this is clearly the best of the three matches so far. In fairness, there's not a whole lot in the way of competition, and the match that happens immediately afterwards smokes it. Oh, there's no doubt about that. And I will say, I don't think this is the best of all of the Survivor Series matches, but we'll get to that one when we get to it. But before we get to it, we've got to get to this. It is, I believe, the in-ring debut of the man we talked about who debuted last month inside of Hell in a Cell at WWE or WWF Bad Blood 1997, which you can find in the archives. It is the in-ring debut of Kane. Right, taking that on that probably would have been a much more appropriate time for a plug. That's exactly what I was planning on because I knew we had to get to his match against Mankind. No longer Dude Love, who got his head bashed against the uh, got his head bashed, bashed against the entrance ramp with a chokeslam. Because, of course, Mick Foley's taking stupid bumps. Sure as hell takes him in this match. If there is a stupid bump to take, call Mick Foley. If Especially in 1997. Especially in 97. If there is a wrestler that can't walk properly these days because of that stuff, call Mick Foley. Well, no, it is Mick Foley. Oh, God. Don't get me wrong. I appreciate everything that Mick has done for us in terms of the sacrifices that he has made with himself. Like, I greatly appreciate what Mick has done for us as a fan. At the same time, going back and knowing what we know now, this stuff is difficult to watch. What also doesn't help is specifically with this match, some of the insane bumps he's taking, it's kind of hard to gauge them when you can't see. Because this was the very, very beginning of Kane. 
Guess what Kane had at the very, very beginning of his run in the WWF? A Sin Cara mood lighting. Red oh, that, lights. That too. He had red lights. So you I, almost cannot see a damn thing because all of the other lights are out. I'm almost expecting Kane to start shucky ducky quack quacking. Huh? What? You had one job sin car to fix the light, never mind. Oh. Okay. It, it's a dated reference, I'll admit. So is Booker T doing commentary on his own match, but it's still it's talked about. Anyway. It's gonna be Kane. I feel like I feel like somebody needs to do a wrestling parody of the Instinct song, it's gonna be me, and just have it as JR's. It's gonna be Kane. It's gonna be Kane. Telling you. Actually it's Vince McMahon, not JR who does that. Yeah, I realized that as soon as I said it. But anyway, I feel like I feel like there's money to be made there. I'm just saying. All right. Oh, sure. All right, let's talk about some of the stupid bumps Mick Foley takes in this match. Shall we talk about the announce table first? Because that looked like it hurt like hell. And not just Mick Foley, although I would see later in the night that the person he possibly took out was indeed okay. Thank God. And By the way, you know, should I, mention that our uh, our Spanish announce team is Carlos Cabrera, no Kukinovich. Shut up. And Hugo, son of a bitch. No, he's not there. Oh, there's no Hugo, son of a bitch? No, and I'm about to call you a son of a bitch if you don't stop it. <laughs> no, okay. it is Carlos Cabrera and Oliva. I was Cena Santana. Not- I was just about to, Ariba. You beat me to it. <laughs> While the well, French so- commentary team is the normal French commentary team, except it also has the addition of uh, Jacques Rougeau Sr. Or is it Ray Rougeau Sr.? Uh, no, it's Jacques Rougeau Sr., okay. which would be Raymond's father. Well, yeah, because his brother would be Ray Rougeau Jr., his brother would be Jacques Rougeau, who would be better known as Mountie. But thanks for playing. Who cares? They all suck. I actually like the Mountie. Why? Because he got buzzed in the ass by Roddy Piper? Oh, the things we can discuss with the Mountie in Saturday night's main event. Available in the archives. All right, that's another show. Or... Or uh, with Roddy Piper and the Mountie and Royal Rumble 92, our longest episode ever. Also available in the archives. Okay, that's enough shilling for now because we still have other stuff to get to. Um, Yeah, so apparently Foley decides to not only take out himself, but take out Tito as well when he hits that announce table. And take out Tito, he does. Yeah, he basically... He takes the Rikishi Hell in a Cell chokeslam bump, except a hell of a lot further out. All the way, in fact, into the Spanish announce table, those poor unlucky sons of guns. And I'm pretty sure he threatens Tito Santana. 
luckily Kenny would be okay, and he would end up calling the show later on once I'm able to see that he's there. But, ow. He would be around to say that, let's see, I was going to do a really bad Spanish accent of Brett screwing Brett, but I guess that's kind of irrelevant at this point. We'll just move on. Um, Speaking of owls, it's the text message that I sent you that was the only part of this match that we actually physically discussed besides the mood lighting. That press slam, though. Ow. Why? Freaking why? Because Mick Foley. Okay, so to put this into perspective, so Foley puts Kane down on the floor and decides to mount the second turnbuckle after he gets back up to the ring apron. That's all, folks. Kane decides to climb up onto the ring apron, hook Mick Foley for a press slam, and then instead of throwing him into the ring, which would have been the generous, judicious thing to do, military press slams Kane down to the floor, back splat first. Because Mick Foley. Look, it's nice that they have have those cute little pads at ringside. It's nice that they know how to fall by God. But what the hell, Mick? Why? Like, I'm willing to bet that the producer of the match... Probably Pat Patterson probably told Mick, Mick, you've got to go out there and you got to get the, the cane over. Well, he really does sound Italian when you do the voice, doesn't he? There's not enough S's in what you say, though. That's, that's true. And it was not banana. Anywho. <laughs> you've got to go and uh, get the, the canes over. you got to uh, make him look strong. So. He, has to, he has to go make him look strong. Please remember to send all your hate mail to s.garmer at gmail.com. Anywho. So I'm imagining that the entire point of this match was to put the focus on the kind of beating that Kane could deliver to McFoley because obviously they knew they were going to Kane and Taker at WrestleMania 14 at this point. At the same time, though, there was no reason for Mick to damn near cripple himself in the process because that is one of the dumbest, dumbest damn bumps I've ever seen in my life. And yet, McFoley would top it. Eight months later. Twice. Why? Because McFoley. Yeah. With that, we move on to the final of our Survivor Series matches. Although there would be another match where somebody would survive. Dun, dun, dun. Boo. <laughs> It is the Nation of Domination. It is Kama, Farouk, D'Lo Brown, and still Rocky Maivia, I think, taking on... Kind of. I mean, it was kind of superfluous at this point. Die, Rocky, die. Taking on Ahmed Johnson, because, sure. LOD, because apparently WrestleMania 13 was such an awesome match. And, and holy cow, why is this guy so over? He's an American from Sacramento, California, Ken Shamrock. 
Got it right. My guess. Time. My guess is that theme music though. Ba-na-na, ba-na-na. Maybe also because he made Sean tap out recently. After yeah, but making also, Brett tap out. He had also tapped out Brent Hart too, so I don't know if they necessarily approve of that. Your elimination for this contest: Rock pins Hawk. Try saying that ten times fast. Rock bottom at two seventeen. Thank God. Get us a give a slap of that. Pins Farouk with a Pearl River plunge at four forty. Rock. Rock pins Ahmed with help from Farouk. Thank Wait, God. Wasn't he just a limit? Never mind. At six minutes and 19 seconds. Booyaka booyaka? Anywho. That was terrible. I own it. It's okay. Animal pins Kama Mustafa Godfather Shango with a roll up at 10.53. Good father. You forgot good father. Well, we all know it ain't easy. Anywho. Animal by count out at 15.01 because after Hawk jobbed, Animal damn sure wasn't. Dan Shamrock <laughs> taps D'Lo Brown at 17.10. And then Ken Shamrock taps The Rock at 20.34. Both of those were ankle walks, obviously. Holy cow, this crowd loves Ken Shamrock. Like, Holy hell, this crowd loves Ken Shamrock. It's insane. Oh, and by the way, Ahmed Johnson and Hawks suck. What was the text that you sent me in regards to the first, I don't know, I want to say, well, he was eliminated at about the two-minute mark, so about the first two minutes of this match. Once Rock gets in there, and Hawk goes after Rock with a small flurry of offense, a couple kicks, a couple punches, and I believe a clothesline off of the ropes. Hawk whiffs, 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 and whiffs some more Billy Gunn bad. He misses Rock by about six inches on everything. Made animal look like a godsend. I would point out the fact, too, that this is the one-year anniversary, or the two-year, an- no, the one-year anniversary, excuse me. I was correct the first time. For The Rock's debut in the World Wrestling Federation as well. He would debut at Survivor Series 1996. Which we have not covered and is not in the archives. So, moving on. Uh, Dino Brown not- looks awesome. <laughs> Well, that's because D'Lo was awesome. D'Lo's one of those guys who never really got the credit that he deserved for being as competent and capable as he was inside the ring. Was he ever a great worker? No, but he was always a very good hand to have, and sometimes that's exactly what you need given the situation. Not to mention he may be the greatest European champion of all time. Um, well, I mean, he's, he, he did never break 6,000 guitars, though. Yes, but he drew a dime. There's, there's a joke there about him and Mark Henry and their association with the Godfather that I'm not going to make because I don't want to be extremely Anyway, you're mumbling. But on purpose. Um, I know. Um, Rock is not Rock yet. 
He shows I mean, flashes. Hmm? He shows flashes of brilliance during the course of the contest. He, he, he doesn't even have his corner kicks right yet. You know, the shake, shake, kick, shake, shake, kick. He doesn't even have that down yet. My point being is that he shows flashes of becoming the wrestler that he would become. He's not there yet. The Rock character is still a work in progress at this point. And realistically speaking, the Rock character would not fully become the Rock character until the following Survivor Series when he wins his first WWF Heavyweight Championship. Survivor Series 1998, The Deadly Game, which is available in the archives. It is? Pretty sure we've covered The Deadly Game before. No. Thought we did. Nope. Hmm. Try again. Anyway. I mean, this to me was the best of the Survivor Series matches. Unfortunately, that's not saying a whole hell of a lot. Um, I, I thought the Team Canada versus Team USA match was decent. I would put it around. I mean... Not that we're ever going to get back to these written reviews. Who are we kidding ourselves? Mm. But if we, ever, if we ever do get back around to these written reviews, St. Valentine's Day Massacre 1999 coming up next. Sure. The, uh... <clears throat> I would probably put it around two and a half-ish. I would still put this one ahead. Granted, I did say I thought USA versus Canada was the best of the first three, but not the best overall. I would still give it to this one, Team Shamrock versus uh, The Nation. Oh, no, I don't don't disagree that it's the best of the four Survivor Series matches. I just don't think it's as much better as, as much better as the Team USA versus Team Canada matches you're leading it on to be. Ending kind of soured the uh, former and not the latter. Um, so here's my question real quick. Why do you think Ken Shamrock was never given a WWF championship? Because uh, it's around this point, and I mean, my God, if you hear that crowd, like we said, he got probably the biggest cheer for any non-Canadian on this show, I can think of only one other person that even comes close, um, that being Stone Cold Steve Austin. But, you know, he would get, I believe Shamrock would even get the championship match at the next pay-per-view, which would be, lo and behold, D-Generation uh, X in your house. But he wouldn't win, and Shawn Michaels would uh, hold on to it until that fateful night in Boston, which would be Shawn Michaels' final match for four years. Why do you think he never got one? Um, a lot of people feel that the reason for that happening is because of the fact that you mentioned he got the heavyweight title match at the following month's pay-per-view in your house to Generation X. There you kind of cut out there. You kind of cut out there. You mentioned the fact that Shamrock got the title shot at the following month's pay-per-view in your house to Generation X. Yes. The general belief is that Shawn Michaels submarined him in that match. No. You, you know the story I'm referring to, I'm sure, but for our listeners that don't, apparently Michaels kept telling Shamrock that he couldn't hear what Shamrock was saying to call what he was saying louder, 
and then went to Vince after the match and said you could clear his day here, Ken calling spots on camera because he didn't want to work with Shamrock. Wow. Sean being a POS. Huh. Imagine that. Hmm. Hi, Vader. 1997, Sean being a dick. Who'd have thunk? Yeah. <laughs> oh, hi, Vader. Hi, Brad. Well, that, that was... I said... That was... That was hi, 90, Diesel. 96 for... 96 for Vader. 95 yep. for Diesel? Yep. WrestleMania 11. Wow, he just had an entire run of being a gigantic dick, didn't he? Yep. Because he sandbagged Diesel on the uh, Jedi powerbomb. <laughs> Still one of the best of all time, though, as much as people like to hate to have to say it, but one of the best of all time. But not the greatest of all time. Um, Sean didn't sell himself out to go to a different company to lose. Remember, all hate now can be sent to S.Gomer. No, 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 no. This one, I'll give it to you. All hate mail regarding the decision of Chris Jericho going to New Japan, you can send right to patketsa at gmail.com. I dare you. Y'all can't have my email address. Screw that. Big boot, never mind. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a joke there that I'm not going to make once we get back into the show, shall we? Sure, why the hell not? So, Team Shamrock ends up picking up the win and Ken Shamrock. Oh, uh, my God. There, there are a couple of other things to talk about because, one, we haven't talked about him yet on this show. Well, I was hoping to avoid me. talking to him. Why We're talking why, about him. Why does my Ahmed sound like Arnold Schwarzenegger? I mean, they have about the same level of understandability, so there's that. All right, so so I'm going to try to clean this up from our text conversation as much as I can. Our text, here, can I? Can I? Because I can sum it up in four words. My God, Ahmed sucks. (laughs) Uh, No, I was going to go the actual route of the conversation that we were having. And you know where I'm about sure. to go with this? And I sure. feel like it could end badly because it's probably going to get misinterpreted, but it is what it is. Ahmed Johnson, the Black Ultimate Warrior. Any complaints can be sent to patketsa at gmail.com. Okay, let me explain that statement because I feel it needs explanation. No kidding. <laughs> Johnson was one of those guys who was, bu- who was pushed based on the look appeal that he had to a certain demographic, an urban demographic. And if anybody tries to dare tell me otherwise, I'll tell them they're completely full of crap. Because Ahmed could not go in the ring. He could not cut a promo to save his goddamn life. There is literally no positive to pushing Ahmed Johnson other than the fact that he may have been somebody that people of an urban demographic might have been able to get behind because that guy comes from the same kind of background I come from. He comes from growing up in the streets. He comes from a broken home. He comes from having nothing being raised in Mississippi, I believe is where Pearl River was, if I'm not mistaken. 
as I want to say Pearl River was in Mississippi. I'm not positive on that. I think so. I think he so. Comes, he, comes from, he comes from a lack of privilege. So people of an urban demographic can sympathize with that is what I was trying to say there. He has the same body type as Warrior. He has the same cut up look as Warrior. I mean, he looks like a million well, dollars. <laughs> he, he oh, at, boy. At, at, at this point, he looks like a million dollars. He wrestles like a nickel, but he looks like a million bucks. I, I was I was I was gonna go along the lines of million dollar body ten cent execution. Uh, what's the old what's the old Bobby Heenan line? Million dollar body, million dollar body ten, ten, ten cent brain. brain. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I was going on. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> isn't far off. By the way, by the way, we should say he looks a million bucks and looks like Ultimate Warrior in terms of muscle mass. He ain't wearing streamers. No, it's, I, I mean it in terms of, yeah, the body type, not the actual look. I don't mean the presentation of the character itself. I mean in terms of the style of body that he had. He was cut up like Warrior was cut up. He had the big biceps. He had the big triceps. He had the six-pack. He had everything. Except for the ability to wrestle or cut a decent promo. Like the Ultimate Warrior. Well, we don't know – we here – we don't know that Ahmed Johnson couldn't cut a decent promo because, much like the Ultimate Warrior, we couldn't understand what the hell he was saying. So, it, it's not intended to be a knock on the guy when I say that he's the Black Ultimate Warrior. It's not intended to be a knock. It's intended to be the fact is, is that he comes from, he was meant to appeal to a certain demographic, and possibly to that demographic he did appeal there are people that like to watch wrestlers that just smash everything in front of them. That was Warrior's appeal. That was Goldberg's appeal. That was probably Ahmed Johnson's appeal. It's kind of Braun's appeal. Uh, yes, I would even say, although Braun is actually turning into a pretty decent worker as well. Yes, yes. And that's part of the allure of Braun is watching him smash. That's why the SummerSlam main event is held in high regard, because it was 10 minutes of four guys beating by a lot of each other. Not to mention, it's also the fact that Strowman's actually turning into a pretty strong promo as well. It's Whereas easy, you know, you have to do is say six words. Well, all you have to do is... Okay, seven. That helps, <laughs> that helps too. Yeah. <laughs> by, the, by the way, Patrick, we're not finished with this show yet. I know. <laughs> Shall we move on from Gabriel and Frank? Yes, let's move, let's, let's move on to what is effectively a double main event. Kind of. I couldn't even hear Austin's music. You could see half of his entrance, though. Like, I, I, I don't know if it was a case of like they turned it down on the network and I couldn't hear it or if they had like issues with this particular version of Austin's theme song or what, but I could not hear Austin's music on this show. So basically everything about Austin's entrance goes wrong because our next contest is the Intercontinental Champion Owen Hart defending against Stone Cold Steve Austin in a SummerSlam rematch. So of course, the biggest deal going in here is well, I believe for the first time, I did not realize something real quick. I did not realize that when they talked about it with China, 
at WrestleMania 17. That was not the first time that they had talked about a hold harmless agreement, which, by the way, would never hold up. Because Jim Ross mentions Austin had to sign one because doctors have not cleared him. It's just like learning a new word, like, you know, abeyance, cadence, you know, things like that. Um, however, he has signed one in order to get a shot at the Intercontinental Championship that he did not lose. As a matter of fact, he won it. And then he smashes Owen. Four minutes. I get that he's probably still feeling the effects, but I mean, four minutes. Was, I mean, he was dropped square on the top of his head at SummerSlam two months prior. Then don't book the match. Oh, no, I'm not disagreeing because he would forfeit. He would have a similarly short match with The Rock at In Your House B Generation X the following month. It would be like five minutes long, and then he would forfeit the Intercontinental title the very next night on Raw. And then he would come back and win the 1998 Rumble, and all bets would be off. No, he wouldn't win the 98 Rumble. You did. Austin. Oh, yeah. 14 was Michaels Austin. Okay, yes, I'm, I am correct. I questioned myself yes. there, and then I realized I was correct. Yeah, he won 97, 98, and 2001. 2001. Yeah, 2001. Well, coming in second in 99, and he wasn't at 2000. Well, anyway, the point being, as far as Austin and, uh, and, and the, I think the, uh, the situation with the title, the Intercontinental title, was that he dropped the belt. He dropped the belt back to, uh, but he dropped the belt to The Rock on the build-up to In Your House Degeneration X. He then pinned The Rock to win the title at the pay-per-view itself. But then the very next night on Raw, he forfeited it. And I want to say that's when he threw the belt into the river. Yes. At least that's, that's no. That timetable sounds. The timetable sounds correct that he would forfeit the title and throw it into the river the night after Degeneration X. I don't know that it was the night after though. Anyway. Um. So. The problem is, as Sherry mentioned, like with Austin's music, you can barely hear it. And then there was the entranceway. You don't know what I'm talking about, do you? No, I don't, actually. I can't say I was paying close enough attention to his entrance to be able to explain. I don't know how, because it's really effing obvious. Like, really obvious. What's the most iconic part of Stone Cold Steve Austin's WrestleMania 13 entrance. The glass shattering. Exactly. They had set up to do the exact same thing at Survivor Series. They were going to have the glass shatter, and Austin would come out to that, walking through everything. Literally, I'm I'm 100% not being figurative here, literally, the left half of the glass only shatters. The other half stands and does not even flinch. 
So he has to come out through half of a walkway. Or half of an entranceway. <laughs> yeah, I don't rem- I don't remember that happening, but now I'm gonna have to check YouTube and look for it. Yeah. It might this may actually be one of the last times that he would get this entrance. Um but it may have been the single biggest flub up in his entrance, in his glass shattering entrance ever. Because, yeah, literally only half of it breaks, and even the half that breaks, it takes some cajoling for it to actually break. Yeah. And then Austin steamrolls Owen and wins via stunner, which, I mean, it looks... I don't know if it's just me. Maybe, maybe not. To me, the stunner here looks more vicious than the stunner everyone would get to know and love. Well, yeah, because he wasn't actually doing, like, the kick wham or anything with it. He was just grabbing people and pulling them down across his shoulder blade. Like, Austin would go to Austin would go to that typical setup kick that he used to do, which is commonly known as the kick wham stunner setup. This Seriously? Little, huh? Seriously? Yeah, legit. I mean, it's not officially called that in WWE parlance, but in the IWC, it's commonly known as Kick Wham Stunner, especially for people who do reviews and stuff. But uh, Austin wouldn't do the uh, the setup kick here. Instead, Austin would land on his feet off of uh, the attempt by Owen to counter the tilt-a-whirl and hook the uh, tombstone, the Owen driver. And Austin would land on his feet flip Owen the double bird, and then just pull him down into the mat with the stunner, much the same way he would catch an off-guard, uh, an off-guard Kama Mustafa with one after the match. Or not a Kama Mustafa, um, Doug Furness with one after the match. I'm mistaken. Yes, because we should also mention, Owen came out with all of Team Canada-ish. Yeah. Oh, that's it. Canada-ish. Yes. So Stone Cold Steve Austin wins the Intercontinental Championship back. Technically, the belt he never actually lost. Well, technically, he'd actually have this happen again because he'd lose it without losing, and then he'd win it back. And then, has Stone Cold Steve Austin ever lost the Intercontinental Championship? Uh, well, I think the Owen win was his first Intercontinental title reign, so I'm going to go with new. Because I don't have to vacate it all three times. I, I don't think he held it a third time. I only remember the one here. Because no, he Rock would defeat him for it on Raw. Like there's huh? some kind of. Pretty sure Rocky Maivia defeated him for it on Raw in the build up to Degeneration X. I'm looking. I'm looking. I'm looking. I'm trying to look. Well, while he goes ahead and checks out the wiki history for the Intercontinental title, I'm going to go ahead and move us on here. All right, so we have one match left to talk about, ladies and gentlemen, and that would be, all right, let's be honest here, gentlemen. Oh, yeah, it's kind of important, isn't it? Yes. So as soon as he finds his wiki history, his wiki history thing for the IC title, we'll go ahead and get into that there, but 
Uh, strap yourselves in, because this is probably going to be one of the longer discussions we've ever had about a single match in the history of the show. Are you good to go over there? Uh, real quick. Stone Cold Steve Austin is only a two-time Intercontinental Championship, and no. He didn't. So he was the champion going into the match with Rock at a at Degeneration X then. Uh, yes, he handed it over the next night. Well, that one hundred percent confirms the fact that he threw the belt in the river after the uh, after the Degeneration X pay per view. But guess what? Austin handed it over to the Lock. As a matter of fact, I believe Vince put him up to the ultimatum. He said. Either you defend the belt or you hand it over to the Rock, and he handed it over because he said, "I'm not defending it." Well, he handed and, it over. If memory serves, he handed it over, hit Rock with a stunner, took the belt back, and then went and threw it in the river. I'm maybe you, because I think he also knocked Vince off the ring apron. He was like running the ropes or something. I'm 90% sure that belt went swimming the night after Degeneration X. I'm almost positive. As a matter of fact. While you go ahead and introduce our last contest here, I'm going to pull that information up because I'm almost certain. It would either be the 7th or the 15th. It would be anyway. December 7th. It would have been the one right Sorry, after. no, it would be, yeah, it would be the 8th or the 15th. Give me one second. Introduce our next okay. match. I'll let you know. So it is indeed our main event, and it is a match, quite frankly, legitimately, eight, months in the making. And, and it's around... The hmm? complete and entire focus of both its own pre-match hype package as well as the pay-per-view hype package. They're one and the same. In rare cases like this, I'm okay with that. It is to prove who is the man in the WWF. It is the five-time WWF champion and current champion Brett the Hitman Hart going up against the Heartbreak Kid, Shawn Michaels. And everything is played up into this. The fight that they had backstage, the tension between the two of them, Brett Hart potentially leaving. That is all coming to a head here. You're correct, by the way. 15th? Yeah, 15th for the belt in the water. The 8th is Austin hitting the ropes and knocking Vince off the ring apron. I'm guessing he hit Rock with the stunner, took the belt, and then Rock threatened him the next week and said, hey, it's right here. Per and threw it, off the PDR, river, threw it in the river. Per PDRWrestling.net and Matthew Petticord's review of the December 8th episode of Monday Night Raw. Austin forfeits the title and hands it over to The Rock. He wants a handshake, too. Trust me, champ. They shake hands, and Austin lifts Rock's arm in victory. Just as Rocky thinks all is well, Austin drops him with a stone-cold stunner. DTA, Rock. Don't trust anybody. Austin picks up the IC belt and tells Vince that he has plans for the belt next week. There's my answer. Just tune in. Same stone-cold time. Same stone-cold. Same stone-cold channel. Who's that? Was just not Batman? 
He's Stone Cold. Okay, Warrior did it less than a year later. WCW Warrior. Thanks for the reminder. You can listen to us talk WCW Warrior with Halloween Havoc 1998 available in the archives. Only about a year old. (laughs) Anyway... All right, let's go ahead. Let, let's go ahead and quit stalling and get to the reason why we're all here tonight, Patrick. Yes. So, yeah, the entire focus is basically this being a rematch from the famous Iron Man match over <clears throat> from WrestleMania 12 back in 1996, and this all is supposed to come to a head here. Now, let's get this stuff out of the way. Yes. This is Bret Hart's final match in the WWF until 2010. Well, technically... Match, 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 match. Technically, it's... Stop. It's technically his final match in the WWF, period. Oh, stop it. You would not come back until it was World Wrestling Entertainment in 2010. Technically, he came back. Well, he came back for the appearance in the Hall of Fame in 2006, but moving on. So, yeah. The match is only 12 minutes. The match is only 12 minutes. Yeah, that's because the, pre, the pre-match brawl before it is like 10 minutes in and of itself. And even before we get to that, the entrances bear mentioning because, for one, we get the the quote-unquote WrestleMania entrance. That's what I've always heard it called, in which you get down the hallway all the way to the gorilla position for, for both sides. And then they both also come out on their own. Sean by himself, Brett by himself, man-to-man, one-on-one. They want to settle this. And then Bret Hart, or rather, and then Shawn Michaels proceeds to, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Disgrace? Uh, fornicate? <laughs> Do every known ungodly thing to a Canadian flag that you can think of, including, but not limited to, humping it, stuffing it down his pants, uh, blowing his nose on it, picking his nose with it. <laughs> And using it as a towel, and uh, yeah, absolute just disrespect to it. If he was in Brazil, he would have gotten arrested. Ask Chris Jericho about that. That was the joke. I'm just informing people where that reference is from if they don't get it. So I'm helping, damn it. Bret Hart comes out as his usual self, looking like God. Um, Here's the thing about it. I almost feel like Ken Shamrock got a louder reaction than even Bret. Uh, You can make the argument that Bret's audio was muffled, perhaps? Maybe, but... Wouldn't surprise me? Seems like the kind of... Hogan 92-esque, big but not huge, like you would think. Not like the Raws in Nova Scotia and Ottawa, or the pay-per-view at the Stampede, or anything like that. 
Now that I think about it, I think international incident is a different one for in your house. Oh, yeah, no, anyway. Canadian yeah, because Canadian CMP. Yeah, yeah that's, that's on me. International incident, I want to say, might have been in Ottawa. Maybe. That uh, would have been, that been a, I, I want to say that's a six-man tag between Camp Cornette and Team, uh, and, uh, maybe Team Michaels? Or is that where Vader pins Michaels to set up SummerSlam 96, perhaps? Yes, international incident was in Vancouver. And it was Cam Cornette versus the People's Posse for the main event. So basically what you're telling me is Vader pinned Sean with the Vancouver maneuver. Got it. No. How dare you disgrace her like that? Your Nicole Matthews bias is showing. (laughs) How dare you disgrace her like that? Anywho, back to the match itself at hand. Uh, The pre-match brawl is pretty entertaining. The match is wet. Okay, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I misworded that. It's unlike Brett. It's not like Brett to have a flat-out brawl like this, where they're See, fighting I all did, over and taking out the referees. Really? I disagree, because that exact thing happened in the double-turn match that he had with Steve Austin back at WrestleMania the, uh, earlier, in this, earlier in this particular calendar year. That was still closer to an actual wrestling match, though, for the most that, part. No, I don't disagree with that, but at the same time, much the same way of what you were talking about, a referee getting taken out, uh, brawling throughout the crowd, all kinds of shenanigans and extra stuff being added into the context of the match, such as you had uh, the ring bell and the chair and everything that happened at ringside as well. Well, fair enough. Um, This just... This feels tense. So... You know, it's one of those things where if you're on the WWE's side, this is tense. If you're on the fan side of this, it feels tense because that's how they're putting it. That's how they're making it to be. So it's one of those things where it's like the fans feel tense, but for a different reason not for the real reason and the actual reason why there's actual tension kind of thing, even though the WWF had largely laid everything out. You know, like you said, they mentioned the brawl uh, that the two of them had backstage. They mentioned uh, a couple other things that had happened between them. Um, Surprisingly, the Sunny Days comment didn't make it. Surprise, surprise. Um, So... To the point that it even brings out Vince McMahon, Sergeant Slaughter, Pat Patterson, who of course takes a bump. Got to get that payday, Pat. Um, and just you know, this this has a tense feel to it until we actually, you know, all the way through actually getting into the ring where it doesn't really ever finish, except for the fact that Brett really has a lion's share of the offense here. 
like a lot of it. I would almost say two to one. I don't disagree with that. I think this match is dominated by Brett. And I think in the context of everything that had gone down between the two, that actually kind of makes sense. Because of the fact that Michaels had more or less taken most of the build-up up to this match, and this was Michaels's, I want to say Michaels' first time in the ring since I won the cell, if I'm not mistaken. Mm, maybe? I, I would think so. That sounds like, sounds like that'd be about right. Um, so, they go through a normal wrestling match, which it still, for the large part, is a brawl. And it's just a showcase of two of the best. Until we get to the ending. Now. Okay, so here's what happens. Uh, yeah, I was, I was going to say, I was cutting no, it off no. there. <laughs> here, here, here's what happens. So Sean puts Brett in the sharpshooter. Brett actually manages to turn it over, and then it all breaks down as Degeneration X and the Heart Foundation make their... That's not what happened, is it? I was gonna, I, I was gonna, I was gonna go along with that and mention what was supposed to happen. <laughs> That's what I was referring to there. I know. So basically, you did what I was gonna do anyway. You, you killed the joke. I know. I know. I'm happy. Anyway, so if you were to ask Brett, and depending on who you ask, only Brett. Sean would put Brett into the sharpshooter with Earl Hebner still down. Brett would, I believe, reverse it, get the visionary tap-out win, but DX would come down, and then the Heart Foundation would come down, and it'd be one giant-ass schmoz, and Brett would possibly cough up the title the very next night on Raw. Possibly. Because at this point, Brett has, either has or is very close to officially signing with WCW. He would debut one month later at Starcade. So, obviously the main thing here is Brett does not want to lose to Shawn Michaels in his home town? No. Country. Because Brett Hart. So what actually ends up happening is they take out the referee, Earl Hebner, of course. Sean puts the sharpshooter on, and while Brett is just squirming in pain, Earl Hebner gets back up, to Brett's surprise, and calls for the bell, signaling a submission victory that doesn't happen. Sean takes the belt. Huh? I don't remember Brett tapping him. That's why I said a submission victory that doesn't happen. I was trying to be... Continue. Okay. Sean looks... Sean looks like Sean, a.k.a. Pissy, takes the belt and angrily walks out, while Brett literally spits in Vince's face and proceeds to stick around for a bit and smash everything. Like, just everything. Anything that, yeah. anything that anything that Brett could break, he does. This is the saying you can't yeah. pay me. 
putting that bastard Sean over. Ah. This is for making me lose in my damn home country. Not home province, not hometown, home country. And of course, it would become known that Brett would end up knocking out Vince later on in the show, and I believe Vince's ankle would be broken or stepped on. I think it was stepped on. Or maybe it was broken because it was stepped on. And Bret Hart is then never seen in the WWF or on its TV again for almost 10 years. And he goes to WCW, and they blow it. They absolutely blow it with him. Yeah, it, it, it's funny that you say that. I, I, I think I sent you a text while I was watching the start of the show. And I want to say that I saw a sign in the crowd that said, good luck in WCW, Brett. And I believe my response to right after I saw that sign was, yeah, well, about that. There were a lot of WCW signs. Like, Brett WCW signs there, I noticed. I noticed a few. Please don't go. Good luck in WCW. Have fun in WCW. See you in WCW. So, Meltzer had a lot of readers at this point. <laughs> FDM. Yeah. Five stars. Anyway. Six in Tokyo. Nah. So, yeah. One of the most controversial moments in WWF and WWE history, and we find out later it was all Brett's fault. Brett screwed Brett. Yeah, let's not just talk about the match itself. Let's talk about the important fallout of this match. (laughs) Obviously, the match itself is actually pretty good, in my opinion, up until you get to the wonky finish. So any kind of realistic rating that would have been assigned to this match you kind of have to judge it based on a curve of how everything ended as well. And by the way, Sean does a fantastic job of playing along like he has no idea what the hell's going on. Because Sean yeah, for later, about 30 seconds. Sean would later reveal that he did know what was going on. But at the time, he kept trying to put it over to everyone and anyone that would listen that he didn't. I'm sorry, I have to hiccup some doing my best to talk in between them. So anyway, and not only that, not only that... If you were to ask him, it was all Triple H's idea. Seriously, he takes credit. His huge honker has done some bad things in his day. Ask Booker T. He sticks his nose in things that aren't his business. Sometimes unintentionally because it's so big, but... Well, to, to paraphrase Jason Sensation, I know I'm late, but my nose got here 15 minutes ago. Anywho. That was on Owen doesn't matter. It still fits. If, if the sneeze guard fits, use the damn thing. Anywho, back to the match, as I was saying here. So this would be the end of Brett and the WWF. Sean would not last much longer in the WWF. Sean would be gone six months later as of WrestleMania, if six, maybe four. Five. I, I was going to say like four and a half, five. Yeah. But the biggest character to come out of this entire situation wouldn't be Brett wouldn't be Sean, wouldn't be Earl, unless you ask TNA, LOL TNA. It would be Mr. McMahon. 
not Vince McMahon, Mr. McMahon. Yeah, this is a different from Vince McMahon stumbling corporate announcer with what a maneuver. And one, two, he got all, now he's kicked out. No, this, this would be yeah. this would yeah. be the Mr. McMahon of just That's remember right. this. And just remember this. Life's a bitch and then you die. And I'll give you credit. The point being here is that the biggest thing to come out of this would be the thing that turned the company around. It would be the Mr. McMahon character that Stone Cold Steve Austin, the rebelist trailblazer, could play off of and bring this company to heights that it would have never seen before and it can be argued that he never saw again. Yeah, this was still a WWF deep in the Monday Night War. This could be argued to be a turning point. Granted, it would still be a few months. I believe it was not the Russell, or rather, not the Raw the night after WrestleMania. I believe it would be the following Raw. So two Raws after WrestleMania 14 would be the first time that WWF Raw would beat WCW Nitro in the ratings after 82 weeks. I actually want to say it was the episode of Raw that Mike Tyson appeared on in January. I can neither Mm. confirm nor deny. I can't confirm or deny this without looking at the numbers, but I want to say it was the episode of Raw that Tyson was on in January, possibly the one right after the Royal Rumble. Yes, I'm looking. All right, well, while he's doing that, let's talk about a couple of other things here. Uh, of the people involved with this particular match here, who do you think knew and who do you think didn't? Um, we talked a little bit about this here. I'm going to mention it on here. I think Jim Ross knew. No, by the way. It is the exact one that I'm talking about. April 6, 1998. The, is that the one where Austin versus McMahon and then Dude Love comes out? Yes. Okay. Then all right. Never mind then. I know yeah, the Tyson Martin. one came. The Tyson one must have come close. Then uh, then it didn't beat it. But all right. Anyway, back to my points here. All right. Are you ready? Here we go. As far as who did and who didn't know, uh, Jim Ross. I think he did. So, before we, so real quick, the confirmed names that know, Shawn Michaels, Triple H, Vince McMahon, Pat Patterson, Jerry Briscoe, I believe, and I don't think Earl Hebner knew until later on, but technically he would have known before the match. Possibly Slaughter. I think Hebner was told when he was on his way out to the ring. Yeah. What makes you think Jim Ross knew? Just because of the way that Ross was talking about the match and the entire build-up throughout the evening of the pay-per-view. You'll notice that Ross is the one doing the talking at the announce table. Jerry Lawler doesn't say a word. I don't think Lawler had a clue. I genuinely yeah. think I genuinely think Ross knew. 
There's one line that makes me think exactly one line, and it was early. As a matter of fact, I think it was the exact time Brett was giving out the sunglasses. Which, by the way, there's someone I'd love to talk to. The kid who got the sunglasses on Brett's last night. But Jim Ross, on the mic, says, this match has been 18 months in the making. And the smart money is that you will never, ever see it again. Granted, JR would have known Brett was leaving, considering, I believe at this point, Jim Ross is still the head of talent relations. So he'd be the one dealing with Brett's contract. That would seem or, to be accurate. That would seem to be, well, lack thereof, but that would seem to be accurate to me. Well, contract negotiations. I don't know, because, you know, JR, being the professional that he is, would continue, would, would basically not cause dead air. And if he's noticing that his partner's not saying a word, you don't want dead air. That's something that, you know, even I, having only gone to broadcasting school, even knows that. No dead air. So... Some of the comments kind of make you think, but I, I, I'm, go, I'm going to stick with what I said last night, because this was one of the things we talked about. I think, excuse me, I think they told Jim something's up, or something's going to happen, go along with it. I don't know if he actually knew what was going to happen, but he would know something's happening. You know what I mean? I, I stand by my statement. I think Ross knew. I mean, I can't confirm this. I can't deny this. I don't know for sure. Obviously, anything and everything that we say at this point is going to be purely speculation. But in my opinion, based on some of the con- comments that Ross made throughout the night and that specific comment about the money odds being that you will never see this again here, it just tells me he knew that, A, Brett was not going to be at Raw the next night, and B, something was going to go down here at the Survivor Series between Brett and Sean. I mean, you know, saying the smart money is you'll never see it again, that technically doesn't even mean he won't be at Raw. It just means you'll never see Shawn Michaels versus Brett Hart. I mean, I guess technically that would be yeah. an accurate assessment, but at the same time, I just I don't see that. Now, second question before we get to the big finish. Work or no? (laughs) I've heard every answer. I've heard every explanation from both sides. Do you think this was a work or do you think this was real? I'm going to say no. And the reason I'm going to say no is because if it were a work, I would imagine that they would have put their differences aside back in 1999 with everything with Owen. Or if it was a work, when it happened, it turned into a shoot when Owen died. Does that make sense? And all of a sudden, and all of a sudden, it turned into the Hulk Hogan special. Work yourself into a shoot, brother. 
Oh, gosh, at the beach. So if we had covered that in our face? No, and we like, never will. We've covered too much WCW 2000. I completely disagree with that. There's no such thing as too much WCW 2000 to cover. I don't want a brain hemorrhage. We've covered too much. <laughs> or an aneurysm, for that matter. Anyway. So, no? Uh, I say no. I, 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 I say that it was. I say that it was a shoot. I I would tend to agree. Granted, some of the evidence saying it was a work, but if it was, this would have been one of the most elaborate ones ever. Not to mention, as you said, you would also have to get past Owen Hart's tragic accident. Yeah, my question would be is if this was a work, with as much information that is so readily available about the world of professional wrestling these days, especially with the world of professional wrestling in relates to how it was when we were growing up watching it. I mean, I know I was I was twelve at the year at the age of the uh, the time of the Montreal Screwdrop. You would have probably been about six. Bingo. Like exact, I was six. So my thought process would be in the 20 years since it happened, there would be much more convincing evidence that it was a work that would have come to light by now. And I mean actual factual evidence, not just pure speculation. Yeah. So I, I do think this was a real, a real and legitimate thing that happened. Um, so, yeah. All right. Big finish time. Best and worst match, as always. What's your best match here? I'm going to go with Kane and Mick Foley. Just because of Why? the amount of stupidity that Mick Foley puts himself through for the sake of getting Kane over. The, the huge-ass bumps that Mick takes. The amount of punishment that Mick takes. And Kane comes off looking like an absolute monster in the course of this match because he destroys Mick for the vast majority of it. Um, How about you, Patrick? The fourth Survivor Series match. Nation, Nation. of Domination versus Team Shamrock. Okay. I'm the Johnson and Hawk sucking aside. Demo Brown looks great. The Rock shows flashes of what he would become. Godfather, well, excuse me, comma. Peru eh. can still go. Shamrock looks like God. You know, taking on the two-on-one, winning, and, as we mentioned, getting possibly the largest reaction, definitely of any non-Canadian, and you could probably put it up there in top three reactions overall in the entire night. He looks like a star. Animal held his own as well. He probably he looked the second best out of all of them. So, you know, it got story across, and... To be honest, it kind of did start, you know, Shamrock versus Rock, which we, we would see kind of ramp up later on. And I believe it would be the Royal Rumble that would be one-on-one, -on -one, and then WrestleMania 14, and then King of the Ring, and it would dominate 1998. So, yeah, I'm very happy with that. All righty. What's your worst match? Uh, the second Survivor Series match, the Truth Commission versus the Disciples of Apocalypse. I agree. <laughs> Just two words. Sidewalk slam. Sidewalk slam. 
totally agree. My God, it was horrendous. Like, it was terrible. Uh, yeah. You know who the best worker of the eight men in the ring is? The ref. <laughs> That's a great line. Uh, Don Callis was the best worker of the eight men in that match, and he was in the match for like three minutes. Next, that he was on the mic. <laughs> yes, he was the best worker in that match on the microphone. There you go. That's the perfect answer. Or you could say he was the best worker in that match, and he was on a microphone. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Mercy. All right. <laughs> yeah, that match is horrific. So, all right. What is your cash for this? I mean, it has to be the launch of the Attitude Era, right? It has, yeah. fact, it has to be the fact that this is the show that created the birth of the Mr. McMahon character that would launch the Attitude Era that would put the WWF into the stratosphere. Yeah, I, I mean, we picked this for a reason. This is a night where everything changed for the WWF. And anyone that tries to tell me different, you're out of your mind. Um, you know, the Miss McMahon character comes out of this. The, you know, full-blown D-Generation X comes out of this. The last show for Brett. You know, it's uh, the last show for, I believe, Bulldog and Nightheart as well. Uh, Owen would not be Bulldog. granted his release. Bulldog, yes. Nightheart, no. Nightheart would be with the company into into December because I remember watching an episode of Raw from uh, I remember watching an episode of Raw from December of '97 where Nightheart gets hit with a chair by Triple H and pinned, and then Triple H spray paints WCW on Nightheart before he leaves the company. Yeah, makes sense. But yeah, this. You can find that uh, you can find that episode of Raw. I want to say December. Or, yeah, that might even be that the the aforementioned December eighth episode of Raw where that happened. No, it would have been uh, it would have been later than maybe the fifteenth. Maybe. Um, but yeah, this this was a night everything changed. So, all right, what's your trash? Whoever made the decision to give the Truth Commission and the Disciples of Apocalypse 10 minutes? Wait, you're serious? No. Um, hmm. That's... Do, 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 yeah, I'm going to need, need you to go first here so I can think about this to give you a more definitive answer. Has to go with something you've already talked about. Mick Foley and Kane. Because, yeah, I put Kane over like an absolute monster, but at what cost? You know, obviously, this being 20 years ago, once again, 20 years ago this Tuesday, we didn't know the kind of damage that things like this could do. And even in terms of fiscal, we did. This would kind of be the start of the end of McFoley, with the run up to it being effectively fast forwarded eight months later 
at King of the Ring 1998, you know, that faithful Hell in a Cell match. But some of the bumps that Mick was taking, I mean, at least he was able to hit the damn table when he nearly took out Tito Santana. But like you mentioned, that that slam, you know, all the way straight to the floor, just no, God no. You know, um, just, it's it's hard to go back and watch it now, seeing Mick Foley in the shape he is now. So. I think Mick's actually doing better now that he's started to do the yoga and stuff, but I understand where you're coming from as far as the difficulty of this match to watch. But I think it is the effort in this match that makes it so much worth watching. I... I you know what? I talked about this earlier, and it really did agitate me. So my trash for the show is going to be the fact that they had a French-Canadian ring announcer. Seriously? Yes, because of the fact that you're appealing this pay-per-view to an American audience. Yeah, you're going to have some Canadian viewers, but the vast majority of the World Wrestling Federation's fan base is in America. And by having a ring announcer that speaks French, you're alienating them from being able to understand what's going on with the introductions to the match itself even though he made the names of everything out in perfect English, the only thing you wouldn't be able to understand were cities and weights. I just... I, I... Okay, okay. It just... It, 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 it's, it's more of a personal annoyance, I think. It's not something that I'm going to stay upset about or anything like that, if that makes sense. But at the same time, it's a personal annoyance to me as an American fan watching these shows. I'm, I'm imagining it's probably similar to fans from other countries when they watch these shows and everything's in English. Or if they have a show in their home country like the UK fans did, and instead of using the Queen's English, they use American English, if that makes sense. All right. All right. I found it odd. I didn't think it bugged me, though. All righty. So one last thing before we get out of here. What is your final score? This is a very difficult show to rate, and we kind of talked about this because of the fact that as influential as it is, most of the matches are not that great. <sighs> I think I've got to put this somewhere along the five-and-a-half line. The biggest talking points are the Kane-McFoley match, the, the Survivor Series tag match that Patrick mentioned, and then obviously the main event. Austin getting the IC title back here is cool and all, but realistically that match probably shouldn't have happened. Austin wasn't anywhere near ready to be in the ring yet after what happened at SummerSlam. The first two Survivor Series matches are two of the worst matches of 1997 in the World Wrestling Federation. Team Canada-ish versus Team USA is okay but it's just okay. And given the quality of some of the workers in that match, it should have been way better. That being said, shows don't come any more historically significant than this one, do they? Hell no. So the historical significance of this show and everything that it led to, the fact that the, the big matches, Kane Foley, Last Survivor Series tag, as well as the main event itself deliver in spades Kane and Foley especially to me it's one of them. it's difficult to watch granted but it's still a very 
very good match. I was entertained rewatching it, even if I was cringing at a couple of the bumps that Foley took. There's enough there to justify viewing it at least once. I mean, historically, it has to be seen at least once anyway. But it's not a complete whitewash of a show other than the, old, the whole Brett screwed Brett thing. I'm going five and a half. I almost feel like in that match, Kane should have just turned around and started yelling, Are you not sports entertained? I'm ignoring that. <laughs> no, you're not, because you just commented on it. Um, see, I almost feel the need to give two different scores. And I'm going to, but I'm going to combine them. If you talk about the actual matches themselves, this show's like a five. Yes, quite a few of the matches deliver, but the first two you know, Survivor Series matches are just god-awful. Austin and Owen, as you mentioned, probably shouldn't have happened, but because it did, I kind of still expected a little more. Um, Kane and Foley is just, it's really hard to watch for me. Like, it is. I, I understand the point of it. It's just, it's, it's, it's tough. Um, the third Survivor Series match, not that bad. You know, except for the fact that the hometown heroes have to cheat to win. Uh, well, kind of hometown heroes have to cheat to win. And the last Survivor Series match, Shamrock looks like Doc. So, in terms of the actual show itself, I have to give it a five. In terms of the historical significance of it, that almost boosts it to a seven. Kane's in ring debut, and he looks like a monster, you know, and would keep that up all the way through 98 and just further and further until he had to unmask. Everything with the main event, you know, Sean and DX starting, Mr. McMahon starting, Brett leaving, Brett screwing Brett, everything about that. And... You get the flashes of what you're going to see with The Rock. You get the flash of what you're going to see with Rock versus Shamrock in the uh, Survivor Series match. So there's a lot here that starts here that makes this almost like a seven in terms of if you want to know where these things started, start here. And, you know, it's kind of a must watch. So I'm going to average it out to a six. The matches, for the most part, are eh. You know, the ones that should deliver do, you know, Kane and Foley almost going overboard with their delivering, and, you know, the last Survivor Series match, and uh, obviously the main event. So I'll give it a six, but for two totally different reasons. I said I was going to combine them. I was somewhere in that range as well, so I'm not going to knock it or anything. So, alrighty. So that about wraps up our review of the 20th anniversary of Survivor Series 1997 Game Rules. Before we get out of here, I just want to thank our listeners. Uh, we wouldn't have made it to 50 shows without you guys actually giving us a chance and taking the opportunity to check us out here on the W2M Network. By all means, uh, I don't know if I necessarily speak for Patrick, but I hope that I speak for both Patrick and Sean when I say thank you guys for listening, and we look forward to providing many more shows for you guys down the road.
And this is our final episode ever. No kidding. Um, but yeah, as Harry mentioned, we cannot thank you guys enough for allowing us to be played on your on your you know iPhones, on your Androids, on everything, whatever you guys listen to us on. We cannot thank you enough We're, uh, for allowing us. Huh? I was going to say, we're just two goofy dudes busting each other's stones about wrestling here. The fact that anybody listens to these shows is kind of a shock to me. <laughs> Gee, thanks. Um, but to allow us to kind of talk to you guys for the past almost two years now, uh, not to mention spin off into the second show, uh, the reaction shows, and just everything we've been able to do. Cannot thank you guys enough. And I guess we should especially give a mention, you know, to Paul and to Sean and apologize to Sean for driving him nuts, for giving us, you know, some things that we need in order to record our shows. So we cannot thank him enough. Um, Here's 250 more and beyond. And of course, I'm not here next week <laughs> because, of course. But, but, but I will be, and Wrestling Unwrapped will continue on, even though Patrick won't be with us. It's as Jimmer. My, as myself, and the current plan is former co-host Jarrett Hawkins making his return. As we remember the life of Eddie Guerrero by covering No Way Out 2004. Eddie Guerrero and Brock Lesnar for the WWE Heavyweight Championship. Indeed. So, obviously, you know, that's kind of one of the big reasons why I usually miss that being Shimmer. So, that will stand here. We will be back at our secondary time slot two weeks from tonight as we will be covering the actual 30th anniversary of Survivor Series with Raw versus SmackDown, every champion versus every other champion. And then, not only do we have champion versus champion, that means we get possibly Brock Lesnar versus Jinder Mahal. That being said, that could change depending on what happens on SmackDown this coming week. So if we're wrong, well, we put a time frame on it, so leave us, give, me, give me a break. We will formally be back in three weeks at our normal time frame. Uh, is that what I... Yeah, okay. <laughs> Hate to think about that for a second. Um, November, November 26th. I, I had to make sure that the time frame was right. We will be back in three weeks as we kind of go back to our roots. And we actually do one of the things that we had set out to do originally when we started this podcast. Kind of a perfect timing for that. We will be covering Starcade, the Essential Collection. Obviously, we will be starting this the day after the Starcade uh, live event in Greensboro. We will be doing the Essential Collection. We will split that over two weeks as it is a 25-match set, plus, I believe, a mini-documentary. So we will cover matches, I believe, 25 through 11, week one, 
and then we will cover 10 to 1 with the big finish during week two. So that will be the last Sunday in November and the first Sunday in December. So have all of that to look forward to. Any, any final words? No, just make sure you check out www.w2mnet.com for everything that you need from the W2M Network, uh, football, wrestling, soccer, video games, entertainment, and so much more available over at w2mnet.com. In addition, if you'd like to listen to more of myself here on the W2M Network, you can check out the kickoff Wednesday nights with myself, Brandon Biscabing, and Stephen Er the Third as well as the SmackDown Live and 205 Live reviews for the Wrestling to the Max Network as I co-host those with Miss Liz Puglisi. And then, of course, you can hear me and Kevin Gray every Wednesday from 8 to 10 Central over on WLGKRadio.com with Going Broadway. So, 50 episodes down, God knows how many to go. For our, for our executive producer, Sean Garmer, I'm Harry Broadhurst. And I'm Patrick Ketza. We will see you soon. <laughs> Harry, we'll see you next week. Both of us will see you in two weeks for Survivor Series. We thank you so very, very much as Wu talks about the most controversial night in WWF history with Survivor Series 1997 gang rules here on the W2M Network. The following podcast is a W2M Network original production. Visit W2Mnet.com for all of our other great podcasts, plus news, reviews, articles, and opinions from the worlds of wrestling, video games, football, and entertainment.